Hi, this is Fraser Hines, uh, Jamie McCrimmon from Doctor Who, and you're listening to Nerdology. Hi, this is Mark and welcome to this bonus episode of Nerdology. We had intended to do a full episode on the tripods, but uh, having recorded the episode, we ran into a few technical difficulties, so that's going to hopefully come at some point later. But our good friend Dwayne from the Sirens of Audio podcast took time out to have an interview with Jim Baker, one of the main actors from the tripods. So I thought it'd be nice to pop that onto the feed so that you guys can check it out and have a listen. talking with Jim Baker from The Tripods way back in the day. Hello, Jim, and thanks for joining me. Oh, you're very welcome. Hello to you and hello to everyone that's listening. Nice to have you with us. So tell us about what you were doing before The Tripods. How did you, how old were you in The Tripods and what were you doing before that? How did you get into acting in the first place? Oh, well, I was very young. When I started working on The Tripods, I was 16. It was exam year at school, at my secondary school. I had joined a uh, sort of amateur drama club, which I went to every Saturday afternoon. And that also then turned into a professional agency where uh, children were put forward for adverts and stage work, all kinds of professional work. And I went for some auditions for adverts and one thing and another. And then one day I was told to go along to this audition for the tripods, which I thought was perhaps camera tripods. I didn't know anything about it. And so I went along and read the script along with a few other people. And I was lucky enough to look and sound like Henry, how they envisioned Henry should look and sound. So I think that was my, that was my lucky break was uh, I just happened to be able to read the script in the way that they they wanted it read, you know. Um, so I was at school doing a drama club weekly. Yeah, that was basically how it started. Okay, so once you got the role, did you kind of do your research? Did you go back and read the books? And um, what was your opinion of them if you did? Well, I really liked the books. They, they were the sort of the old style uh, classic boys own adventure books which I enjoyed reading. Once I knew I had the part, I was actually given book one, which I read. Uh, When the scripts came along, however, I realized there were some differences. And I I stopped reading the books at that point because it was important for me to sort of focus on the way that the scripts were taking the story and the differences. I didn't want there to be any confusion. But certainly once filming had ended, I carried on reading and certainly read through to the end of uh, book three but I have only you know to be honest I've only read them once uh, and that was way back then. Tell us about your, your your fellow cast members what was the the chemistry like between you? It was very good 
I think John John Shackley and I, I remember being sent off to lunch uh, down in London during the audition process. I think the producers and the directors knew at that stage that we were likely to be offered the parts. When we were sent off to get some lunch together to see how we we bonded together, even though we were from very different backgrounds and different parts of the country, we did get on quite well. And Kerry, Kerry was the last to be cast, if I remember correctly. And there was a bond between the three of us, but we each had our own relationship with each other. I think Kerry had a unique relationship with John, which was developed certainly during season two, because obviously I was no longer there at that point. But there was a chemistry which I think worked well. And that's um, a testament to the people that auditioned us, I think. They, they, they looked for that uh, uh, special bond between us because we were going to spend a lot of time together. You know, it was a boy's, boy's own journey about these three guys traveling across Europe. And so it had to work and it had to be natural. So, yeah, we got on well and still do now, although we don't talk anywhere near as frequently um, as we once did. But we do when we do talk, we get on really well. You mentioned that the books were, were quite different to, to the scripts and there were quite a, quite a few extras that were added for the TV series, like particularly your romances uh, and yours in particular. There was a bunch of girls who were added to that, weren't, that didn't appear in the books. How was that for you as a, as a young actor to kind of portray that, that young romance? Was that challenging for you? Well, certainly being 16 years old, there are some there are some fairly obvious, I guess, anxieties around being thrown into a situation where your your character falls in love, etc. So I remember there were some mild anxieties, but they, they quickly went. I, th- I think um, the young actress, Cecilia, who played uh, my love interest at the, the vineyard, she was, although young herself, she was very mature. I think we we're all approaching it in a very professional manner. And so there were some young anxieties, but I think once we'd rehearsed it a few times, we sort of got over that and we were able to feel comfortable in the way it was running. And I certainly have very fond memories of those times. Those girls and certainly the mother, the the V show's mother, just made it very easy. They were all very, really great, great people. And it was easy to relax in that environment. Um, So I don't remember the anxiety being a real problem. One thing I did notice was the amount of location filming that was done on the series. And, and you, uh, you traveled all over the place, uh, lots of places, lots of different places in Wales and uh, even Port Merion where, um, well, obviously, I don't know if you know, you know of The Prisoner, which was set there, and uh, uh, there was Doctor Who's been there as well. It's a very, very well-used location. Um, do you have any memories of those different locations that you had uh, at the time? I have lots of memories of all of those locations, but they were so... Uh, we did about six months going from location to location, and a lot of them were in Wales, so it's... It, I have been back actually uh, to the locations to try and find specific places, but it's quite difficult because there are so many and they're sort of dotted around in 
places that are quite remote, you know. But the locations were great. And it was, I mean, Port Merion sticks out, as does uh, a lot of the stuff in Wales, where many series like Doctor Who, as you say, were, were filmed. They stick out as well. The old slate mines and the disused ra- slate railways, the mining railways were very interesting. But the whole process was really quite exciting to me i mean i went on location as as i say a 16 17 year old lad we were away for six months at a time we had a coach that was literally dedicated to moving us around and sometimes it was just myself john and kerry and maybe one or two other people that were going from location to location on this coach and the coach was used as a place for people to sit and relax and eat food and stuff like that once we arrived at the location. But it was our personal transport, which was quite fun, having this enormous coach all to ourselves. So we went around in style and we were treated very well, but it was so busy. Uh, a lot of the locations do sort of blend into each other now, many, many years on. It's hard to separate some of the memories out. But uh, really fun times, really great and exciting times for a 16, 17-year-old, you know? Yeah, did you ever get up to any antics, misbehave or get into trouble? Oh, yes, absolutely. But I couldn't possibly tell you about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I think um, it was just average stuff for people of that age. We were so busy. I mean, honestly, most days on location were... 14 or 15 hours at least some were even longer we would be back in the hotel for nine o'clock we would have a bite to eat and relax for a little while but we'd be up at six and back on location you know most of the food we ate was actually on location breakfast and lunch was on location and it was very busy quite hectic so um the antics were really quite limited because of how busy we were you know Getting to the end of series one, I guess you were probably only contracted for series one, but having read the books, you probably would have anticipated series three. Did you, was, there any, was there any scripts for series three or was that uh, cancelled before you even got there? And, and how, how did you feel about that, knowing that, that Henry was pretty much the hero of, of the third season? I was, of course, looking forward to that very much, um, having read the books and knowing where the story was going and having discussed it with people at the BBC. But there were no scripts issued to us. I believe they did treatments for the episodes so that the, the writers had something to go at, something to you know form their scripts around. But it was to be reasonably true to the third book. So Henry was going to end it in the way that he did in the third book no spoilers (laughs) how that made me feel well it's I finished my filming quite early on in series two when series two filming began Robin Hayter had had arrived on set to do a few scenes just as I was just finishing off my last few scenes and I and went off to normal life if you can call it that and and fully anticipated getting the the nod and the wink as to when I would start filming once again for series three, but that never came. And unfortunately, one day I got a letter and a phone call from Richard Bates saying that it was cancelled and how sorry he was. And uh, yeah, it was really very upsetting because we'd put a lot of work in, you know, a lot of the production team had stayed with it, the designers, 
and the directors and certainly the producers, Richard Bates, it, was a, it wasn't just another job to these people. It was a project that they had given a lot of time and effort to, as we all did. And so it was very disappointing to have it cancelled in that way, especially when the story wasn't ended. You know, there's been many BBC shows since then that have just gone on endlessly. But this was a, a finished, rounded product. You know, it was a, a trilogy, a story in three parts. And to not finish it, I think, was, in artistic terms, it was criminal um, not to finish it. And from a personal point of view, of course, it was quite upsetting because, um, as I say, we spent a lot of time and effort and we were really hoping to get it done. But it wasn't to be. The accountants and the, the those above us decided it wasn't to be. So. What can you do? So I've, my research tells me that uh, Michael Grade is the one responsible for cancelling the tripods and you probably wouldn't have even known him. But did, was there any other detail about why it was cancelled that you heard of or was that way above your pay grade? Way above my pay grade. But I was, I mean, I initially blamed Michael Grade for that. But um, I have been told subsequently that it was actually accountants within the BBC didn't like the way the budget was um, it wasn't going over spend but um, what the producers had done had moved some money from series two to series one and subsequently they'd taken a little bit earmark for series three and put that into series two and they then presumed that there was going to be quite a massive overspend on series three but of course everything spent in series two for example tripods model tripod cities and things like that costumes one thing or another would all be reused for series three so it was projected to all full level at the end of series three so uh, those who knew were were saying well this is a bit premature why cancel it we expect to come in on budget and on time etc but they just said no we don't like that so we're cancelling it and the, the viewing figures don't warrant it. But if you look back at the viewing figures at the time, there are a lot of BBC shows now that would be really quite honoured to get the viewing figures that we were getting. I realise TV is very different now. We have many, many more channels. BBC back in the 80s, mid 80s had a sort of captive audience almost. So um, that's probably why audiences always show as being higher. But uh, we certainly weren't lagging in the audience department. And I, I think um, I think there are a few red faces in the BBC wishing that they had completed it. Because now, looking back at it now, they would have at least had a completed, uh, a rounded product. You know, they would have had a, a story that was told in full and something that would work now. I think they can't show it now because it, it does end so abruptly and it's, it's maybe a bit of an embarrassment for them. Yeah, you're right. Now that you mention it, I've never noticed it on any streaming channels or cable TV when it was going. Never noticed it being, uh, being replayed there. It's only ever been released as a DVD package. So um, in, in that sense, it's a bit of a shame that, uh, that it was never finished. But I believe that I believe Disney's had the rights ever since then. Have you heard anything about on the grapevine? I know it's I know it's a work in progress, but um, can you give any more detail about what you may have heard Disney's doing with the uh, project? Well, I'm afraid to say I don't. Um, I know as much as you do that Disney 
have bought up the rights to it. And one thing I do know is that Disney often buy rights to things just merely to stop other people from having them and from being able to make them. It's kind of like the way that big supermarkets work. They buy up land uh, under the pretense of building a supermarket, but in fact, all they want to do is stop their competitors from having that land to build a supermarket. You know, Disney's Disney are a law unto themselves. Within Disney's copyright laws, for example, I understand that you cannot copy anything Disney produce, obviously, but they also include a clause that says you can't use any media to copy Disney that is brought in from another planet by aliens just to cover their asses because they're, they're so fearful that somebody will copy their stuff or infringe their copyright, that they even copy stuff that hasn't been invented yet or indeed brought to the planet by aliens. So there's a little bit of debate around whether Disney will make it. I personally don't think they ever will because there are a lot more, shall we say, popular tripod-style alien invasion movies that have been done to death now. And I think we've gone past that sort of tripod-walking invasion from aliens. And it's a bit passe now, perhaps. Uh, They're looking for, for new stuff. So we may have missed the point at which it would have worked. I hope I'm wrong but we may well have missed it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but out of the, out of the core members of, of uh, the Tripods cast, I think it's only Robin who is still in the acting business. Did you continue on for long after the Tripods with acting? What was your story after that? Yes, you're right. Robin is the only remaining actor and still working. Although I think some of the um, other actors did carry on, but uh, Robin is the only one that I speak with that I know is continuing to act certainly Kerry and John haven't and I haven't after the tripods finished I along with a close friend of mine started up a video production called a company called Inkling Productions uh, with the hope that we would get some sort of corporate style video production jobs or we would do some commercials or that sort of thing in the hope that we could earn some money to create our own productions. But we're talking about sort of 1986 going on 88 and Britain was in quite a heavy uh, recession and new commissions were very thin on the ground and new commissions were only going to established production companies. And we didn't really get a look in. We, We did quite well in the service industry. At the time, they had a thing called VT Playback. It's a video camera that fits to the eyepiece of the film camera on a film set so that more than one person can view what the film camera sees. Traditionally, it would only be the cameraman that would be able to see. It's a very cheap, inexpensive, closed-circuit television, basically. And we provided those services to some film sets. So I got to work on some great music videos Paul McCartney, for example, and a few others. We worked on quite a lot of commercials, and um, that took us that took us through to the late eighties, early nineties, really. At which point, my family came along, and it, it wasn't making lots of money. It wasn't it, towards the end of the eighties. It was barely making an income, actually. So I decided that I had to go off and drive a bus to support my family. I wanted to live 
with my then girlfriend and mother of my children. So I decided to get one of those regular jobs. And I, I drove an old London bus through London with a conductor on the back, the Route 13, which was actually really great fun. It was a really great job until, again, politics got involved and they privatised the bus system and the, the job changed forever. So I moved on to trucks at that point. And I then stayed with trucks until about 2014. I drove trucks up until then. And uh, I'm not sure if any, any of your listeners or yourself are aware. Since then, I've been making soap. I make a small range of very natural, very pure, simple soaps, which um, I sell online and at markets and fairs and stuff like that. So I live a very different life, you know. Um, the trucks weren't for me. I couldn't stand sitting behind a steering wheel for many more years because it's really a mind-numbingly boring job. And I was really glad I got out of that. I had enough of um, sleeping in a tin can every night. And so I, I, you know, jumped off with both feet and tried to give a, a completely new direction a go. And I'm really glad I did because um, I love making soap. I love the whole thing about it. I love having my own business and taking my own way in the world. And they say you change your main career three times. And this is my third major change now from actor to driver to soap maker. I'm not sure what's next, but uh, I might stop at soap maker now. Yeah, I found it fascinating that you changed from that such a drastic career change. Um, why soap? Working for a supermarket really did show me how wasteful society, all of us, myself, was becoming and how dependent we are on quick, cheap, simple fixes. And I just generally in life started to look for a better way to live. I wanted to cook from scratch more for example I wanted to know what was in my bread so therefore I started making my own bread I just generally in life wanted to be less wasteful and use a, a better you know to consume better quality things for myself so you know it's the old adage you are what you eat etc and I've always in, preferred using soap over these chemical alternatives that you buy in a plastic bottle uh, which is a completely wasteful thing to be doing. And so I looked into it and I just researched it on YouTube, bought a few books about it and realized just how simple it was to make soap. And I tried a few experiments and realized that the stuff that I was producing was way much better, felt so much nicer to use, was so much more pleasant, left the skin feeling a lot nicer. So I started making it for friends and family and people said, you know what, this is great, why don't you sell it? And so I jumped through all the legal loopholes that you have to jump through, the same sort of legal loopholes that L'Oreal and all these other big companies have to jump through in order to sell soap and, and other cosmetics. And I sort of made six bars. I got six bars going and just sort of started selling them, selling them and see how they went. And I've never had a bad review since making them. No one's ever said, I don't like this soap. They've always been very positive. And the people I've met in that journey are just really great people. They're all positive people living a similar sort of lifestyle. You know, it's a, there's a sort of little artisan, artist sort of community, both online and also at the fairs 
and the people that you meet. It's less, oh, how can I put it? It's less sort of consumerism. There's less, it's less money oriented. It's about people. It's about society and living a better life and and all of that kind of hippie stuff, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think you'd love it where I live in Tasmania. It's very much like that with lots of cottage industries and artisans, like you say, and uh, lots of different markets all over the island. Uh, if you ever get a chance, drop down to Tasmania. I think you'll love it. Oh, sounds good. Sounds good, yeah. I think communities like that do benefit from local people making local stuff. You know, if you look back to previous life when we didn't have money, we used to barter. You know, if you wanted an egg, you'd go and take what you made and go go down to the guy with chickens and get some eggs from him. And not only did you get some eggs, you built a relationship with that person. And that you then learn perhaps a skill from him or, you know, and you learn how to keep chickens yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And that community built by the interaction from not only from the businesses that they ran, but from the social life that they had. And the whole community was bettered for it. And I think if we, I think this COVID-19 stuff as well, it really shows us that we are better off with smaller communities looking after each other, being more proactive, making stuff locally and making it in a more economical and ecological sense. And there's my, there's my environmental rant over. Now I was going to say in the current uh, world environment, soap has really been more important than it is right now. So if we want to support you, where can we find you? Well, I have uh, a website, which is heritagesoap.co.uk. It's a very simple, basic website, which I built myself. But there is a link on there to my Etsy webpage where they provide me with the shop services, you know, where I sell online. And so that's etsy.co.uk, Heritage Soap UK, that sort of thing. But a Google search will find my company, which is Heritage Soap. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, so if people wanted to find me, that's great. I'm not sure... Uh, the postage to Tasmania is going to be all that economical to get soap all that distance. But um, by all means, have a look, see what you think and uh, drop me an email with your thoughts. And um, it'd be nice to hear from people. Yeah, well, the beauty of podcasts is that uh, we're not just limited to Tasmania. So there'll be lots of UK listeners as well. So yeah, happy to support you in, uh, in that endeavour. So really appreciate you coming on to talk about the tripods and uh, your other endeavours. Jim Baker, thanks so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. I always like this little trip down memory lane, so thanks for your time today. And thank you to Jim and Dwayne. That was great. So until next time, thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch you can email us at nerdologyuk at gmail.com or you can tweet us at nerdologyuk we're also on facebook just type in nerdology uk podcast and also now you can leave your audio feedback so there's a link in the show notes you can click on that or uh, if you're on the anchor website listening to the show there is a little button that says message and you just click on that and you can use your mobile phone or your computer and you can leave an audio message.